Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, September 7th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, signs of hope and of peril in Mississippi's fight against COVID-19. Then a deep dive into vaccine hesitancy. And Amtrak may soon service the Gulf Coast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's COVID-19 case count remains high as the Delta variant of the virus spreads throughout the state. Dr. Thomas Dobbs, the state health officer, describes a medical system still in crisis. There's a lot going on. You know, we've seen a record number of cases. We've seen a record number of deaths. Um, that's the real tragic part. On, on the sort of the, the worrisome side, we're seeing the highest number of ICU patients with COVID that we've ever seen, the highest number of ICU patients that we've ever seen. But we are starting to see a downward trend on new hospitalizations and new cases. So that's certainly a welcome sign. We certainly don't have a sense of, you know, the rapidity with which that might drop or if there might be a rebound after Labor Day. I'm a little bit worried about the Labor Day sort of bump. The holidays do tend to get us pretty aggressively. Most recently, the Department of Health reported a three-day total of 5,781 new cases of COVID-19 in the state, along with 125 deaths. That reflects data collected between September 3rd and 5th. Dobbs says the overwhelming majority of serious new cases occur in unvaccinated Mississippians. We lost so far, we're going to, for the month of August, and we'll get more reports. They come a little bit later, around almost 900 folks so far, right? We had the highest number of cases for the whole pandemic in the month of August. In that number, 61 of them who died were between the age of 18 and 39. Not a single one of them was vaccinated. I feel confident if they had been vaccinated, every single one of those people would be with us today. It's a stark and painful truth, but it's just what reality shows. Not a single one was vaccinated. Dobbs strikes the table with his hand for emphasis. You can hear it faintly in the background.
We'll talk more about vaccine hesitancy after the break. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi's COVID-19 vaccination rate remains one of the lowest in the country. Demographically, that's not a surprise. Mississippi is the most religious state in America, as well as one of the most politically conservative. Polling indicates that those two identities, especially in combination, make a person especially likely to be vaccine hesitant. Natalie Jackson has been studying that exact phenomenon as research director at the Public Religious Research Institute. She speaks with our producer, Rob Lane. The correlation between conservative beliefs and evangelical beliefs among white evangelicals is really strong. So we regularly show that about 80 percent of white evangelicals are also Republicans. So it's a really high rate of overlap, which makes it tricky to kind of unwind what of their beliefs, particularly regarding vaccines, are related to religion and what's related to politics when, you know, the reality is both of those things are going together. In general, we do see that there's a lot of these strong beliefs in God being in control and God's will acting on earth, you know, we, we see those beliefs playing out in a subset. It's, a, it's not all white evangelicals. It's not even a majority of white evangelicals. But we see a subset of them who apply those beliefs to say, I don't need to get the vaccine. And, you know, the argument of, well, you could get really sick and die is just not as powerful as the Mississippi governor said. Death is not a threat when you believe in eternal life. So that is not going to be a particularly effective approach to convince these people to get the vaccine. By the time you combine that with the political views and the politicization of the pandemic as a whole, you get a really deeply ingrained core belief that you don't need this vaccine. Since the very early days of vaccine rollout, we've heard concerns nationally about vaccine hesitancy. As I remember it, this group, conservative evangelicals, were not necessarily identified nationally as a major group of concern in terms of vaccine hesitancy initially. Obviously, that narrative has changed dramatically over the past few months. Were you concerned from the very early days? When did it first dawn on you that this might be a real challenge in terms of vaccine distribution? I do think the national narrative um, focused quite a bit at first on the trust issues that we would see among Black Americans and Hispanic Americans, you know, the people that have been not treated well by the medical system in our country historically, I do think that was 
perhaps the biggest focus at first because we knew that was going to happen. We, we knew those attitudes existed and that the trust would be a thing to overcome. I think it wasn't as clear how other groups would respond, but certainly once the data started coming in and we, you know, Kaiser Family Foundation started surveying in December, I believe, uh, we started in March, you know, once the data started to roll in, it was really clear what was happening and that the uh, conservative and particularly conservative religious groups were falling behind. I know you have also written about the correlation between what kind of media conservatives consume mm-hmm. and how vaccine hesitant they're likely to be. For example, someone who watches Fox News is dramatically less likely from your research to be vaccine hesitant than someone who primarily gets their news from a channel like Newsmax or One American News Network. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So for Republicans, we looked at these relationships among independents and Democrats, and they just aren't there. And Republicans seem to be uniquely situated to have different views on vaccines according to what news they watch. And of course, if if you look at what the networks are putting out, it does make sense. I think the somewhat surprising piece is that when we dig into the data, uh, Republicans who say they trust Fox News most are not that far behind Republicans who say they trust mainstream news. So by mainstream news, we mean you know, CNN, national networks, ABC, NBC, as as well as local news and public news. So anything kind of considered in the mainstream world. The people who trust Fox News in March were getting vaccinated at essentially the same rate as Republicans who trusted mainstream news sources. That gap widened a little bit in June. It's still not a large gap. The biggest one by far is people who trust very, very conservative sources, such as Newsmax, One America. There are a handful of others that people wrote in that are along those same lines that we grouped together. And what was really stunning in our June survey was that people who most trust those conservative networks, nearly half of them said they would not get the vaccine under any circumstances. Something that's fascinated me and something I've been really curious about is we know that white conservative evangelicals were a major part of President Trump's base of support, both in his 2016 and 2020 presidential campaigns. We can also cast our minds back and remember that in the latter part of his presidency, he really staked much of his campaign and his reputation on the safety and the efficacy of vaccines. Where did white evangelical conservatives start breaking away from one of their most popular national political leaders on this issue? The Trump factor is really interesting in all of this, because as as you said, he was touting the vaccine. He did some credit claiming for the vaccines. There was a recent rally where he told people they should get vaccinated and they booed him. And so he backed off and said, okay, I guess it's a personal choice. So it's really fascinating how little Trump's message about the vaccines actually kind of permeated this group. 
I definitely wouldn't say that they have split from Trump in any meaningful way on anything else. But that departure from Trump and particularly the the booing him for saying that recently is a fascinating thing that seemed to develop, you know, once he was out of office and it, it seems almost like what he had to say about the vaccines just didn't matter. They were they were tuned in to him on other issues, but not on on this one. Looking forward, do you have any advice for, for example, public health officials in Mississippi who face the increasingly daunting task of continuing to attempt to get a significant percentage of white evangelical conservatives in the state to get the vaccine? I think it's about understanding where people are coming from. And I know that's a really difficult job when people don't think that death is you know, a substantial threat when they have a very strong eternal life belief, you know, saying to them, but you might die if you don't get this, is not necessarily going to be the way to go. So I would say one of the most powerful ways we've seen to possibly get to these people is through their religious leaders. Uh, If you can get cooperation from religious leaders, from from the more conservative congregations, those people will be able to put more credibility behind the argument saying, you know, this is a part of loving your neighbor and this is something that you should do. Natalie Jackson is director of research at the Public Religious, or excuse me, Public Religion Research Institute. Coming up, a look at a proposed Amtrak line from New Orleans to Mobile. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Amtrak's set to receive a sizable chunk of the trillion-dollar infrastructure bill working its way through Congress. The passenger rail line says it'll invest that money in expanding train service to smaller American markets. That may include the Gulf Coast, where a plan is already on the table to run twice daily trains from Mobile to New Orleans. If green-lighted, that line would make stops in four Mississippi cities, Pascagoula, Biloxi, Gulfport, and Bay St. Louis. Critics of Amtrak's proposal said railroad... Pardon me. Railway funds would be better invested in improving speed and efficiency on already established lines. And sure, those concerns are valid, but it's critical not to underestimate the potential of public transit in smaller cities. That's according to Ross Knox, who's secretary treasurer of the Southern Rail Commission. He speaks with Rob Lane. Really, to the leadership of uh, the late Senator Cochran, Senator Wicker, Governor Bryant, they pushed us, and us means the Southern Rail Commission, which is a three-state compact of Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana. Uh, We have commissioners that are appointed by our governors. We worked closely with Amtrak, worked closely with the Federal Railroad Administration, and also worked closely with the host railroads who own the track to see uh, what kind of service made sense and what would it look like and how to bring it back. And what we came up with 
was a two-day, I mean, a two-times-a-day service, seven days a week between New Orleans and Mobile. If you live in New Orleans, you can go out to Bay St. Louis for the day, Biloxi, Gulfport for the day, like go to the aquarium in, in Gulfport, go to the beach, Biloxi. You could do a weekend in Bay St. Louis, come out on Friday morning. They do golf carts there. The golf cart picks you up, takes you to uh, one of the downtown hotels, and you spend the weekend. You don't really need a car there. So it really makes our coastal cities a lot more livable. With this new infrastructure bill, it looks as though Amtrak stands to pick up about $66 billion of federal money to expand passenger train service in the United States. Um, And certainly that could go a long way towards making a Gulf Coast train line a reality. In the past few days, more details have been coming out about how Amtrak plans to spend that money, and some experts have said they're concerned that, well, Amtrak is very ambitious about the number of miles they're going to expand their train service. A lot of people are saying this looks like it's going to be the same old Amtrak. It's going to be slow. It's going to be delayed. It's going to be inefficient. Is that a concern you share? Not not on ours. You know, what the Southern Rail Commission is concentrating on is Baton Rouge to New Orleans, and those are the areas that we think make sense. The studies show that they work, and the city pairs are close enough together that the trip times are are acceptable. The biggest problem you have in expanding passenger rail in the United States is that almost all of the rail in the United States is privately owned. So you have to work around the freight, that's, and, we, and you have to work around it, and, and, and the railroad has to stay fluid because the freight's got to run. That's very important. It, you know, when you go and compare it, you say, to Europe, well, in Europe, the cities are, are more dense and closer together, and then you have lines there that are purely for passenger service, have very little freight on them. So it's really not a fair comparison. What we find is, is if you can get to the point where those trains are on time all the time, you know, 80, 90% of the time on time, people will use them if they can rely on it. And that's, the, that's where we try to encourage Amtrak to go with it right now. I know early on when this giant infrastructure public transit bill was being floated about, there was a lot of talk of potentially a super high-speed rail line servicing much of the eastern seaboard. At this point, it seems like talk of that has died down a bit, but nothing is set in stone. If there was a renewed push towards that kind of service, are you afraid that that might funnel money away from more less densely populated lines, like potentially this Gulf Coast line? No, I mean, I think the Gulf Coast line, the, the money is there. I mean, we really aren't relying on this new infrastructure bill to do anything on the Gulf Coast. So, when you say the money is uh, there, does that mean you believe it would be profitable out and out? No, no, I, no. I mean, no no transit. No, there is no transit service that's profitable. Airlines, if they had to cover their TSA costs, their air traffic control costs, the airport costs, they would not, you could not buy, you couldn't afford to buy this. So you really can't look at it that way. You have to look at it from an economic standpoint. What kind of economic development and economic benefit does this bring to an area? So, you know, it's sort of like putting in an interstate interchange. You know, when an interstate interchange goes in, the land around it becomes much more valuable 
you know, you put in truck stops and hotels and all those different things. So we're not waiting on the new infrastructure bill to do that. We had already done that. From the East Coast perspective of a higher speed rail, what does that mean for us, Mississippi? I think what it means is we need to continue to try to connect ourselves, Jackson, for example, to Birmingham, Birmingham to Atlanta. We also need to be looking at what's going on between Jackson and Dallas-Fort Worth and connecting the Jackson Metro to Monroe, Shreveport, East Texas, and Dallas makes a lot of sense. And uh, you know the studies that have been run in the last few years over that say that train actually does pay for itself above the rail. It pays its operating cost. That's the way we look at it. That makes sense. That does. And it kind of leads me to my final question, which is, if you look at Mississippi right now in the state of public transit in Mississippi, it's wonderful but almost fanciful, it feels, to imagine highly efficient railway connections to Atlanta and D.C. and Dallas-Fort Worth. Why is it important that Mississippi remain part of the conversation when we talk about the future of public transit in America? When we look at what's going on in Mississippi, you look at the, the latest census data that's come out of Mississippi Shrank. I mean, one of two or three states in the, in the union that's shrinking population over the last 10 years. And I don't think anybody will deny that we have a serious problem with brain drain. We have a serious problem with attracting young people and keeping our children here. My daughter goes to Villanova as a graduate student up there, and, mm. and she started really using like Amtrak. 10 minutes from the station, ran up to New York last weekend, you know, really enjoys it. And we just see what it can do for even small towns. And, you know, our big frustration is trying to communicate that to people. And we sort of found, especially in Washington, that doing this is a bipartisan effort. We've got, we've got one of the few things that we've got a lot of Democrats support. We've got a lot of Republicans support. We've got to get there. And I think you see that through this bill. But we want to do it right. And these articles come out, and, and I think they make some valid points. But we're trying to make it something people will use, not not being a train enthusiast and we just want to see the train run by. No, we want something that's going to stop. I mean, the thing is, like with Jackson, if we were to do a split the train and and take it to Dallas Fort Worth. You already have a train going north south every day. The city of New Orleans between Chicago and New Orleans. Jackson would be like one of three cities in the United States that has trains going all four directions. It would be tremendous, I think. And when we talk to people in these towns that we when we work, they see it as hope. They see it as a connection to the country. That's how they really view it. I mean, the people, and I'm not talking about the mayors. I'm talking about business owners and different people. It's just, this is our chance to bring people to us. Hmm. That's, and that, that's what keeps us going and doing what we do. Ross Knox is secretary-treasurer of the Southern Rail Commission. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.